Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. One, two, three, Ned's Richard, two. Henry's four, five, six, then who? Yes, we're still pondering that question, then who? What happened after Henry VI came to the throne? We left him in a last episode mad and catatonic after finally losing the war against the French that we now call the Hundred Years' War. And his rival, Richard, Duke of York, was in charge and he was pondering the question could he take over could he get rid of henry altogether now this series takes us from king william the first right up to the present day with king charles the third and at the time of recording this we've recently witnessed charles's coronation at westminster abbey in london a piece of living history with a ceremony going back hundreds and hundreds of years and there was inevitably a huge amount of debate in the media at the time about what it all meant. And a lot of that debate focused on the idea of whether we actually need a royal family. What are they for? Uh, whether, you know, should we have a king on the throne at all? And all this chatter, I think, boiled down to the issue of whether or not we should have an unelected monarch as head of state. Now, on one side of the argument, you can put the case that to have a king or queen as head of state, someone who is not allied to any political party or any political persuasion, someone who is politically neutral above politics, is a useful thing. And a monarch is born into that position. They're trained from birth to do the job. 
which is frankly quite often a thankless and tedious one, opening factories, having dinner with dull foreign dignitaries, making speeches written by other people, shaking hands with interchangeable men in suits. But these monarchs have learned the art of diplomacy and statesmanship and they're able to represent the country as, theoretically, a neutral figurehead who can stay above petty party politics. And, you know, when you look at the quality of our recent elected politicians, the idea that any of them would make a respected head of state is laughable. The idea, for instance, that, that Liz Truss might have been our ultimate representative on the world stage is just, well, it's too embarrassing to consider. The counter-argument is that in a democracy, the people should decide who their head of state is. What right do any of these monarchs have to take the role? And what do you do if they're an absolute disaster? The core of this argument is that if you have an elected head of state, not only can you vote them into the position, you can easily vote them out again. Yes, they're overtly political, but no matter how bad, say, an American president is, after four years, they have to go. And someone like Trump, a monstrous embarrassment on the world stage, was indeed voted out. But, this argument goes, if you have a monarch you don't like, if you have a King Trump, you're stuck with them. You can never get rid of them until they die. And it's quite mind-boggling, really, when you consider what strange processes of history have led us to this point where we accept this enormously wealthy family. The, I think they're the biggest landowners in the country and certainly the wealthiest family. And yet we accept them as our heads of state. Well, I hope that this series will help us all to understand this, as I say, this strange process of history. But only someone who has a very shaky grasp of British history could get it so badly wrong to claim that if you have an unpopular monarch, you can't get rid of them. If you look at British history, the majority of our monarchs have had a shaky hold on the crown, and something like a third of them have been either deposed, murdered, executed, or, in the case of Edward VIII, been forced to abdicate. Any monarch only rules by consent. If King Charles starts to behave in a manner the bulk of the people don't like, he would end up going the same way as his namesake, King Charles I. I mean, perhaps he wouldn't have his head cut off, but we would get rid of him. The power of the people is enough to do that. And the reason I'm talking about all this is because the reign of the monarch featured in this episode, King Henry VI, Part Two, is a perfect example of what happens when a king goes wrong. In this case, it leads to some 35 years of civil war, the Wars of the Roses, with five kings involved playing musical thrones. If Henry VI hadn't been a weak king and lost his marbles, he might not have lost his hold on the kingdom. But once he was seen as weak and vulnerable, the circling wild dogs closed in. But how did it all start? What exactly happened? What was it all about? On one level, it's quite simple. The Wars of the Roses were a dynastic dispute. Two branches of the royal family fighting for control. 
Just another bloody civil war. Literally bloody. The aristocracy seemed intent on wiping itself out, and many families used the excuse of the war to settle old rivalries. And it included some of the most violent and deadly battles ever fought on British soil, with the Battle of Towton being the bloodiest ever. So, as I say, on one level, it's actually very straightforward. It's the Lancaster branch of the family against the York branch of the family. A bit like if Prince Andrew's offspring, the Yorkist branch of the family, had gone to war with Prince Charles's branch of the family. But when you start to actually try and describe what goes down during the war, it gets enormously complicated. And I've been going backwards and forwards thinking, should I just do a really simple, basic top line summation? Or should I go into it in more detail? And I, I think I'm going to try to steer a middle path. Ah, but, but you know, but, but the thing is, there are, there are a lot of really interesting characters to meet along the way. So please forgive me for any diversions. So, so as I say, I'll, you know, I'll try to make it clear. But one of the downsides of a podcast is that I can't give you any visual references. Now, perhaps I'll create a website that you could go to, which might have things like family trees on it. But for now, if you can get hold of one, and there are many, many online, it might help you to follow along with me. I mean, you know, don't do it if you're driving. I know a lot of people listen to podcasts when they're driving, but uh, I'll try and talk you through it as best I can. Now, one of the things that makes the story of the Wars of the Roses so confusing is that you have all these powerful families who are intermarrying, even within branches of the royal family itself, people who are fairly closely related, which means that we get this tangled web. But here we go. Just like the Hundred Years' War, this conflict goes back to Edward III. Edward had seven sons and five daughters, including the tragic Joan, who, if you remember, died of the Black Death in France on her way to marry a Spanish prince. We can forget her and the other daughters. Luckily, none of them have any bearing on this story. The seven sons were Edward, the Black Prince, William, Lionel, the first Duke of Clarence, John of Gaunt, Edmund, another William, and Thomas. We can forget the two Williams, they both died in infancy, and we can forget the youngest son, Thomas, who, like his sisters, has no bearing on this story. So for now, we're going to concentrate on the four main sons. The eldest, Edward, the Black Prince, this great warrior and army leader in France, dies young, and his son, Richard, inherits the throne as Richard II. The succession skips a generation. But Richard II isn't secure on the throne because he's quite wayward and quite weak, which wouldn't be a problem if he didn't have these powerful uncles. Next, there's Lionel, Duke of Clarence. All you need to remember about him at this point is that his daughter, Philippa marries into the influential Mortimer family, and she has a son, Roger Mortimer. Now, this is not any of the other famous Roger Mortimers who we've looked at in previous episodes. It seems that there was a rule at the time that in every significant part of history, there had to be a different Roger Mortimer involved. And this Roger Mortimer is important only because he has a daughter, Anne. 
So remember Anne Mortimer, descended from Edward III's second son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, as we move on to Edward's next son, John. John of Gaunt, who you should remember from previous episodes, an extremely powerful and wealthy man and a very able politician. He could have really helped Richard II, but the young king kept him at arm's length because he feared that Uncle John might want to usurp him and take the throne. He never did. He never wavered in his loyalty to Richard. But after he died, Richard foolishly disinherited John's son, Henry Bolingbroke, and exiled him to France and confiscated all his lands and property fearing that he too might want to take the throne and that totally backfired because it left Henry no choice but to raise an army in France and come back to England and try to get his lands back and he had such a groundswell of popular support that he went on to depose Richard and take the throne as Henry IV having captured Richard and starved him to death. So this is the Lancastrian branch of the family who, you could say, had no great claim to the throne. Which means that Henry IV is pretty insecure. But his son, Henry V, manages to shore everything up by reigniting the Hundred Years' War and attacking France, which everybody loves. And he goes on to win his great victory at the Battle of Agincourt, after which he's able to force through a treaty with France and marry Catherine, daughter of the mad French King Charles. And this treaty, the Treaty of Troy, also established that Henry V would succeed to the French throne on Charles's death. But then Henry dies before Charles and the throne of England, as well as the throne of France, passes to his infant son, Henry VI, the subject of this episode. So that is the Lancastrian branch of the family, the branch of the family that currently sits on the throne, the Red Rose faction descended from John of Gaunt. And now, after Henry V dies, his wife, Catherine, daughter of the French king, remarries into a Welsh family, the Tudors. We'll park them to one side, but that's where the Tudors enter the story. And we'll pick up on that when we come to Henry VII. So don't worry about the Tudors for now. So as I say, Henry VI has inherited a shaky throne and a wobbly crown. A crown that won't even fit him because he's only nine months old. The next of King Edward III's sons who we need to look at is Edmund, Duke of York. John of Gaunt's younger brother and the founder of the Yorkist branch of the family, the White Rose. And this is where it starts to get complicated, because I'm sure you think so far it's been straightforward. But Edmund's son, Richard, the Earl of Cambridge, marries Anne Mortimer. If you remember, she's the descendant of John of Gaunt's older brother, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, via her father, Roger Mortimer. Now, if you accepted a female line of succession, then Anne Mortimer is senior to Henry VI. And even if you go with the male line of succession, which of course was the way things were done, by marrying Richard, she unites those two branches of the family into one very powerful package. Anne and Richard's son, another Richard, confusingly, Richard, Duke of York, can, if he wants, 
claimed to have a stronger right to the throne than Henry VI, because both his mother and his father are descended from King Edward III. Now, bear with me, this Richard, Duke of York, is not the famous Richard who becomes Richard III. He was known as Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and he was one of our Richard of York's sons. Confusingly, we have three Richards in a row here, but it's the Richard in the middle, Richard, Duke of York, who eventually mounts a challenge to Henry VI thus pitting the Yorkist faction against Henry, who's the head of the Lancastrian faction. So they're all connected, they're all relatives, they've all made complicated marriages. And just to make my life harder and yours, there's another branch of the family that we need to look at. After John of Gaunt's first wife, Blanche, dies, he marries again to Catherine Swinford, or Swineford. I've mentioned her so many times through this series, you think... I'd have bothered to find out how to pronounce her name. I'll call her Swineford. If you remember, she was the governess of John of Gaunt's household and she became his mistress and they had children. And after John officially marries her, he gets the Pope to legitimise this branch of the family and they become known as the Beauforts, who become a very powerful family and stay very close to Henry's Lancastrian branch and are his staunchest supporters being, in a sense, his half-brothers and sisters. And in fact, Henry keeps the Beauforts too close. He commits the ultimate sin of favouritism. He promotes the Beauforts at court, thus alienating the Yorkists, who are feeling that they're being sort of pushed out into the cold, as you've got this uh, Lancaster and Beaufort power base there. And various members of the Beaufort family become the target for hatred and revenge. Now, just as an aside, three generations down from Catherine Swineford, Margaret Beaufort marries into the Tudor family and is the mother of Henry VII. But as I say, we're parking the bloody Tudors for now. So to recap, in a nutshell, the Wars of the Roses are this dynastic dispute between John of Gaunt's branch of the family and Edward of Langley's branch of the family, who go on to exhaust each other in endless fighting, thus allowing the Tudors to nip in from round the back and take over. Now, as I say, none of this would have happened if Henry VI had been a strong, firm ruler. But he comes to the throne as a child, and as he gets older, he starts to show signs that he's inherited his grandfather's madness from the King of France. Henry's a very simple man in all senses of the word, which makes him a hopeless king. And we also have a civil war in France between the King of France and the powerful Duchy of Burgundy, which feeds into the story of the Wars of the Roses, which we saw in the previous episode. And there are other growing tensions in England because alongside these royal families, there were two other very important aristocratic families who were central to this story, the Nevilles and the Percys. We've come across them before, particularly in the story of Henry IV, with the exploits of the heroic figure of Harry Hotspur, otherwise known as Henry Percy. Now, the Nevilles and the Percys were the two most important and dominant families in the north of England. 
they held the north against the Scots and were as much, if not more, concerned with Scottish matters than with English. They were the lords of the north, able to muster experienced troops quickly and efficiently. We've seen how the Scots would periodically either raid across the border and try to take over castles or launch full-scale invasions. And it was largely down to the Nevilles and the Percys to hold them off, at least until the king was able to bring an army up from the south. They were consequently very powerful and extremely wealthy, and successive monarchs tried very hard to keep them on sight, which meant they held great sway at court. The Percy family had come over from Normandy not long after the events of 1066, just after the harrowing of the north, where they set up camp in that part of England and gradually grew more and more powerful. To this day, the Percy family are the Dukes of Northumberland and their base was always at Elnwick Castle. Now, funnily enough, we did some filming there on the Far Show in the 1990s. We had written a few sketches that required a castle. And it's ironic that this imposing building, it's a really amazing castle, very beautiful, key to so much of early English history, has been reduced to being the picturesque backdrop for some comedy sketches. Arse! The Nevilles are interesting in that they are one of the very few powerful aristocratic English families who predate the Norman invasion. On the male side, their house can be traced back to an Anglo-Saxon warlord called Uhtred. And I'm pretty sure that's who Bernard Cornwell based his central character on in his Last Kingdom Saxon warlord stories. And after the invasion, uh, this Saxon family married into the Norman de Neville family and adopted the name. But inevitably, if you have two such powerful and influential families right next to each other, it causes friction. And rivalry between the two families eventually led to fighting that developed into a full-blown family feud, which sort of spilled over and partly drove the Wars of the Roses. Because they were at each other's throats, it meant that they could easily be exploited. Anybody seeking power could bolster their cause by promising to support one family against the other, which is exactly what happened in the Wars of the Roses. Ultimately, the Percys side with the King and the Lancastrian branch of the family, while the Nevilles side with Richard and the York branch of the family. Now, King Henry VI has his base of power in the north as well, at Lancaster. And confusingly, Richard, the Duke of York's power base, isn't in the north. It's just a name, a title. The family estates of the Yorkists back in Henry's time are on the Welsh borders. They're the Welsh marches, equivalent to the Scottish marches of the Nevilles and the Percys. And the Yorks are as powerful, wealthy and warlike as their northern counterparts. And Richard, Duke of York, actually marries a woman from the Neville family, Cecily Neville, thus uniting their two families. So in some ways, the Wars of the Roses is also a war between the north of England and the south, with the north of England, as I say, being King Henry's power base and the south being the power base of Richard of York and the Nevilles. The Yorkists have very strong connections with London, and London then as now is almost like a mini-state within the country of England, no monarch can take the throne without the consent of the people of London. 
which has strong city walls. And there were occasions during the Wars of the Roses where the decision of Londoners over which side to take in the conflict would have a decisive influence on the course of the war. So London, despite only having a population of about 40,000 at the time, held huge power, and it still does today. If you leave London aside, the North-South divide is as it always was. The South of England being conservative and the North being Labour, or at least anti-conservative. London is an anomaly in the South. Apart from one or two extremely wealthy boroughs, it always votes anti-conservative. And it holds huge power and influence within the country, which is why every conservative government tries to somehow reduce the power of London, to move institutions elsewhere, to try to move the money elsewhere. But the one thing it won't move elsewhere is itself. The seat of government and power is within London, and whilst conservatives might try and force other people to leave London and set up elsewhere and live elsewhere, they themselves have no interest in doing so. So, I hope that's all crystal clear. Basically, all you really need to know about the Wars of the Roses is that everybody had the same name and everybody killed everybody else. I mean, there are six Edwards, six Richards, four Johns, four Henrys and three Edmunds. At least the women mostly had different names. There was a Blanche, two Catherines, a Margaret and an Elizabeth. So let's look at the Edwards. We've got King Edward III, who started it all. Then there's Edward the Black Prince, whose death complicated matters. There's Edward, Earl of Warwick, the grandson of Warwick the Kingmaker. Edward, Prince of Wales, who was Henry's son. Then there's Edward IV, who's the first monarch of the Yorkist line. Then Edward V, his son, one of the princes in the Tower. Then there's his brother, Richard of York, who was second prince in the Tower. Richard II, who was deposed and starved to death. Richard, Earl of Cambridge, who was part of the Yorkist branch. His son, Richard, Duke of York, not the same Richard, Duke of York, who became Richard II. We also need to look at Richard Neville, Warwick the Kingmaker. Then we get to the Johns. John of Gaunt, the most powerful son of Edward III, sadly overlooked in the succession stakes. Henry's uncle John, the Duke of Bedford, one of Henry V's brothers, who co-ruled as protector during Henry IV's infancy. Then there's John Beaufort, the first son of John of Gaunt's second marriage. Uh, John Beaufort, again, his son, and then we're on to the Henrys. Henry IV, of course, Henry Bolingbroke, the usurper, Richard II's throne, followed by his son, Henry V. We, we know all about him. Henry VI, our current king, leading on to Henry VII, our first Tudor monarch. Then we've got the Edmunds. Edmund, Duke of York, for starters, youngest son of Edward III, Edmund Tudor. This is where the Tudors get on board. He's the father of Henry VII. Then Edmund Beaufort, another bleeding Beaufort. And then there's a Lionel, a George, a Thomas, a John, a couple of Humphreys and a Jasper. So that, in a nutshell, are the causes and personalities of the Wars of the Roses. So let's get back to Henry VI. Uh, now, as I said, uh, we left him in 1453. The English had just lost the final battle of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Castillon. And that was the end of English hopes in France. Henry had a breakdown and descended into madness. Perhaps he'd inherited it from his grandfather, mad King Charles VI of France. Uh, people have tried to analyse him centuries later, which is uh, frankly impossible. At the time, it was called a frenzy or just madness. Historians have suggested it might have been schizophrenia or perhaps bipolar disorder, but it's impossible to say and foolish to try. Certainly, moments of frenzy, grandiosity and paranoia contrasted with deep catatonic depression sounds like an extreme form of bipolar. But no, 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 stop. I mustn't get caught up in this posthumous analysis. But essentially... Henry is unable to rule. 
His ambitious and clever wife, Margaret of Anjou, is held at bay. Nobody particularly wants her to take over. Richard, Duke of York, is at this point next in line to the throne. If Henry dies without producing a son and heir, Richard, from the Yorkist branch of the family, will take the throne. So this allows him at this point to become protector of the realm. Now, if you remember from the previous episode, or if you haven't heard the previous episode, I'd better explain. There's this character, Edmund Beaufort, from the illegitimate side of the family, if you like, who is a big power at court. He is Henry's favourite and he is uh, Margaret of Anjou's favourite. In fact, so much that there are rumours that they are having an affair, which are probably completely unfounded. And the first thing that Richard of York does as protector of the realm is demand the arrest of Edmund Beaufort. As I said before, the Yorkists were envious of the power that the Beauforts held at court and wanted to get rid of them. And the Queen is not at all happy with this. Her power base is being eroded and Richard's is being strengthened. So he's in a pretty good position until the Queen makes an announcement that she is pregnant. Now this changes everything. Because if she has a son, Richard will no longer be heir to the throne. And that's indeed what happens. She has a son whom she calls Edward. Henry is still catatonic at this stage. And he recognises nobody, not even his wife. And he has no idea that she's had a baby. And this fuels the gossip around court that perhaps Margaret had an affair with Edmund. And as I say, it's highly unlikely Basically, Margaret was tarred by the same brush as many powerful and successful women in history, that they must somehow have been sexually voracious, particularly as they were stronger than their weak husbands and often made firm alliances with powerful men. So they must have been shagging. I mean, look at the awful gossip surrounding Catherine the Great of Russia, that she had sex with everybody and everything, including her horse. But the gossip at the court of Henry and Margaret, is fuelled further when Henry suddenly emerges from his catatonia at Christmas time in 1454 and steps blinking back into the daylight, amazed and delighted to find that he has a son. He describes the boy as a miracle and has no memory of being his father. So Richard of York, the man who would be king, his plans are knocked back and Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, is released from prison and takes his place back at court, no doubt with a big smirk. But Richard has made firm allies of two members of the powerful and influential Neville family, the Earl of Salisbury and his son Richard. And the younger Neville, Richard, is also the Earl of Warwick by marriage. He is uh, married into the Warwick family. So it's all a bit complicated, but essentially Richard of York is Richard Neville's uncle. And Richard Neville will go down in history as Warwick the Kingmaker. So that's what I'll mainly call him from now on, so he's easily identified. And we will see how later on he's instrumental in getting two kings onto the throne and two kings off the throne. He eventually believes himself to be the most powerful man in the country, even above 
these two kings, Henry and Edward. But at this point, Margaret and Henry's position is much strengthened by having a son. And they don't trust Henry's cousin, Richard of York or the Nevilles, at all. And knowing the support for Richard and the Nevilles in London, uh, they decide to move the court to Leicester, closer to their northern stronghold, away from London and all its intrigue. And Richard and the Nevilles quite rightly fear that they are now on shaky ground and that Henry and Margaret and Edmund Beaufort will be plotting against them. So both sides are incredibly suspicious of each other and they both put together an army and they both marched towards each other, meeting in St Albans. Nobody really expects there to be an actual fight at this point. Richard of York's argument has always been that he has no problem with the king, he doesn't want to depose him, he simply wants to get rid of the bad advisers that he's got around him. It's the same old story. You can't openly attack the king, but you can attack the men around him. And everybody thinks there'll be some kind of just diplomatic discussion between the two sides. But there's not. It actually leads to a battle. The first battle of St Albans. And normally with the battle, you know, if you say like the Battle of Hastings um, or the Battle of Agincourt, it's because the battle is near that place. Uh, but the first battle of St Albans is actually fought in the streets of St Albans. There are two reasonably large armies involved, but it's more of a sort of skirmish, a sort of street fight. So Henry is camped in the middle with his lords and his personal guard. Richard comes into the town, a fight starts. It doesn't go well for Richard of York, but his great ally, Richard Neville, Warwick the Kingmaker, he actually takes his troops round through the back streets and they come up behind where Henry is camped out, completely taken by surprise and overpower him and his lords, leading to this victory on the Yorkist side. And this is the first battle of the Wars of the Roses, Richard of York against Henry of Lancaster. And not that many men are killed, probably 50 or 60, but several aristocrats are. And this seems to be Richard of York and Warwick's aim is to get these guys out of the picture. And amongst the casualties are Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. He's slaughtered. One of the Percy family who is allied to King Henry is killed. And this is actually one of the sons of Harry Hotspur. So we're not that much further forward in history from the era of Hotspur. But his son is killed, as well as a few other quite important men. And King Henry himself is wounded because there's a bit of confusion. Nobody's quite sure who he is and what's going on. And he doesn't seem to be displaying his standard. He's hit by an arrow. But Warwick and Richard of York stop. They don't kill Henry. In fact, they kneel before him and say, we have no fight with you, my lord. We simply wanted to get rid of these bad men around you. You are still our king. But you must accept Richard back into position of power at your court. And Henry seems to accept this. As I say, he's a fairly simple fellow. And Margaret, his wife, is understandably not at all happy. 
Richard of York has put himself back into this position of being in charge again. Warwick, Warwick the Kingmaker, well, he's not Kingmaker at this time, is made Captain of Calais, which is the sole remaining English territory in France, probably to, to get him out of the way. It's a kind of sop to the Yorkist faction. And this leads to another slightly uneasy piece with Henry theoretically being on the throne, but Richard of York now being the most powerful person in court and his great animosity between him and Margaret. And eventually Henry comes up with this idea to, to, to make everybody happy, to stop all this arguing. He comes up with the idea of having this great festival in London which he calls Love Day. Uh, and the idea is that all these different parties will come together and they will make friends with each other. But, you know, um, it, sounds, it sounds like a kind of um, a, a modern music festival. <laughs> yeah, have you got your tickets for Love Day, man? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, who's headlining? Oh, Kingmaker. Uh, and also there's going to be uh, Margaret of Anjou, um, Henry VI, uh, the Dukes, they'll all be there. Um, but yeah, so there's this extraordinary event called Love Day where this procession starts from St Paul's Cathedral and winds its way through the city to Westminster. And the enemies are all forced to hold hands. Margaret is forced to hold hands with Richard of York, her greatest enemy. And as far as he's concerned, she's his biggest rival, the King Henry is nothing. And also involved in this are the sons of all the uh, lords who were slaughtered at the Battle of St Albans. And they are carrying on this feud. They do not like Richard. They want their revenge. But they are all forced to hold hands and they march through the city. It looks like nobody was completely sure that things would go off well because the Lord Mayor of London armed 5,000 men just in case and Warwick had brought his own private army of 600 men with him. But it, it went off without a fight and led to a couple more years of, of this sort of uneasy truce. But Warwick in Calais manages to build his support. There's no real navy at the time and the, the French are constantly um, harassing English ships and interfering with trade and occasionally attacking English towns. But Warwick in Calais tries to put a stop to this and build up support there and get some ships, which will be very useful to him. And so he's very popular in London. He's very popular with the merchants and businessmen who have their, their base there because he is, he is helping trade to flow. He's helping money come in for them. So this means that, again, the Yorkist power base in London is strong. He does do a couple of things where he attacks people who he shouldn't have done, which causes a bit of friction, and he is called back to Parliament to answer for his actions. But he realises that this is a plot and that Margaret is hoping to kind of overwhelm him and capture him, and there's a small fight, but he manages to escape. And essentially this just leads inexorably towards more fighting. The effects of Love Day don't last very long perhaps a day at most, friction grows between the factions and things completely break down again. Uh, Richard, Duke of York, his two main allies are 
Warwick the Kingmaker and his father, the Earl of Salisbury, another powerful Neville. And even though they all swear an oath at Worcester Cathedral that they are loyal to the king, it leads to an outbreak of hostilities. Warwick brings men over from Calais and they confront Margaret's army. Essentially, it's Margaret. Henry is around, but he kind of tends to sit under a tree during these battles and sing songs to himself. But they meet at Ludford Bridge. And unfortunately for Warwick and the Yorkist side, his men from Calais defect during the night and melt away. And Richard and Warwick basically run off, leaving their army behind to surrender. Warwick manages to get back to Calais and Richard, with his sons, escapes back to Ireland. Um, we established in the last episode that he he was made kind of governor of Ireland. He's in charge over there and and is reasonably popular amongst the, the lords there and able to raise men there. So Margaret thinks that she's safe and she starts to put together a fleet at Sandwich to go and attack Warwick. But Warwick beats her to it. He is more powerful in the channel. He brings his own ships over and in fact captures the whole fleet and makes it his own private fleet. He's made very welcome in Kent. They have grown to dislike Margaret and Henry, thinking that they are trouble. And so Warwick puts an army together, marches to London. Margaret and Henry scarper. They retreat north as far as Coventry. And as I say, Warwick has popular support in London and he manages to put together a, a reasonably sized army and thinks, OK, I'm going to press on with this. And he marches north. Richard of York is still in Ireland at this stage, but his son, Edward, marches alongside Warwick as one of his commanders and they meet Margaret's army at Northampton. It seems that Warwick orders his soldiers to spare the ordinary fighting men on the other side and concentrate on killing the noblemen. This seems to be what this war has come down to, a sort of um, a hatchet job of everyone just trying to wipe out their rivals. And this time it's the Queen's army that disintegrates. A large faction led by Lord Grey uh, refuses to fight and allows Warwick to come charging in on one flank. It seems that Lord Grey had made an arrangement with Warwick that he would help him out in a property dispute he was having with the Duke of Exeter. It's that kind of a war. Everybody's trying to settle scores. This is the first battle, if you're interested in these things, the first battle on British soil to employ artillery. Although the artillery on the Queen's side it doesn't seem to be of any use because it rained in the night and um, their powder got wet. So that combined with um, her flank disintegrating means Warwick easily beats her and it's her turn to run away. She escapes with her son, Prince Edward, he's, uh, who's only about seven or eight years old at this time. And they escape to Wales and ultimately to Scotland. But they are unable to take King Henry with them. He just sits around going, tra-la-la-la-la, oh, what a pretty battle. I wonder who's going to win. I hope it's the goodies. But for him, the baddies win. I mean, you can't really say who are the goodies and baddies in this war. But essentially, Warwick wins and captures Henry. He takes him back to London and parades him through the streets with his feet tied to his stirrups. And Warwick has got what he wants. He's got Henry separated from his 
supporters. He's got the queen out of the way. Um, he can now set himself up as the guy who basically runs the country, but he won't depose the king. He sticks to his word. He is loyal to Henry. Which is all going well until Richard turns up from Ireland with an army of his own and says, OK, guys, here I am. How about you declare that I am king? I am King Richard III. And there's a deathly silence at court. Neither Warwick nor the other lords want Richard to be king. So Richard is a bit put out, but he agrees to be protector of the realm again. The one thing they do allow him is to be officially declared heir to the throne instead of Prince Edward, the Prince of Wales, who is with uh, Margaret. They say, OK, when Henry dies, you can become king. There's a problem in all of this is that there is no point. You know, if you've captured Henry, but you don't have Edward, there's no point in in executing Henry or having him secretly poisoned because that simply makes Edward next in line to the throne. And young Prince Edward is still at large. He's with his mother. But we have this act of accord signed here that states that Richard is now official heir to the throne. Margaret is absolutely furious about this. She gets together with the King of Scotland and they try to put forward another army to come down and sort this shit out which she does. And Richard, the man who would be king, boldly rides north with his own army. And along with him are the Earl of Salisbury and his son, Warwick's brother, another Edmund. And this leads to a great battle at Wakefield, at which something happens which, which really wasn't supposed to happen. Richard is killed. Richard is suddenly taken out of our story. Richard of York never does become king. Closest he got was Lord Protector. Salisbury is also killed. He's captured and executed. And his son Edmund is also executed. And their heads and various body parts, as they've all been chopped into pieces, are displayed over one of the gates of York. They're pinned up there, with Richard of York's head wearing a paper crown and a sign saying, let York overlook the town of York. And Margaret leaves a space on the walls for Warwick the Kingmaker's head. And now, filled with fresh hope and a feeling that the tide of war has turned in her favour, the Queen presses on, marching south. And Warwick the Kingmaker, Richard Warwick, whose father and brother have just been executed and their heads displayed at York, leads another army and they meet at a second Battle of St Albans. And this one does not go Warwick's way. It's his turn to run and flee. And Margaret liberates Henry. So he gets taken along to these battles and kind of, uh, I think he was found sitting in a tent in this one. Again, just mumbling and twittering to himself. So Margaret is with her son. She's got her husband, Henry brilliant. She is back in power and she presses on to London. But when she gets there, the people of London lock the gates to her and will not let her in. As far as they're concerned, this is a barbaric army of northerners who are going to desecrate their city and run riot. 
Now, one of the themes of this series is how much of English history comes down to this rivalry between the North and the South, a rivalry that is still ongoing. And it's interesting if you look at it that this divide is, it's a physical divide along the River Trent. It's a great cultural divide and people in the north of England would have a very different accent to people in the south of England and they would use different words for things, different dialects, often in the north going back to Viking times and old English pronunciations. And then in the south, we've got the influence of the Normans and the French which seeps into every aspect of culture. About 15 years after Margaret's army of northerners is turned away from London, William Caxton sets up the first printing press in England in 1476, during Edward IV's reign. And cannily, he sets up near the Palace of Westminster because he knows that his books are going to be sought after and bought by the rich and powerful. He says in the introduction to one of them that he has to choose which words to use. He tells this anecdote of um, some northern merchants being shipwrecked off the Kent coast and going into a farmer's house to try and ask for some some eggs. And the farmer's wife saying, I- I'm really sorry, I'm English, I don't speak French. Uh, because she doesn't understand what these northerners are saying and assumes they must be foreign. Uh, And it is only when one of them realises the problem and starts using southern words and pronunciations for egg. I'm not sure which way round it is, but one word for eggs is eiren and one is eggis. And Caxton says in the printing of his books and and the translating of these um, stories that he's often printing, that he has to decide which version of common words to use. Caxton being a southerner, chooses southern words which is the start of I suppose what you might call the domination of Queen's English of the southern accent pronunciation and dialect and even vocabulary becomes the dominant one because that is what Caxton starts to use in his books. So we do have this very pronounced divide between northerners and southerners in England and Henry's support is in the north and we'll see that when things go wrong and he's having to uh, flee, he will flee north. So essentially, London holds out against the king and Queen Margaret and these, as they see it, barbaric northerners. And the queen retreats. She takes her army back away north, which allows Warwick to take control in London. And if you control London, and if you control the Palace of Westminster and Westminster Abbey, and you have the support of the people of London, then you can essentially rule the country. And this is what happens. Another son of Richard of York has survived. This is Edward of York, who fought alongside Warwick at the Battle of Northampton. And they're still together. They're both in London. And Warwick steps into his role of kingmaker. He gets Edward crowned King of England as Edward IV. And we'll pick that story up in the next episode where we deal with the ongoing Wars of the Roses and the reign of Edward IV. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In the meantime, I'd like to welcome back Helen Castor. In the previous episode, she talked about Joan of Arc, but she has also written about Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou. Hello, Helen. Hello. So you wrote about Margaret of Anjou in your book, she Wolves, where you looked at various powerful medieval women. I did, and she is the original she-wolf in the sense that it's Margaret whom Shakespeare calls the she-wolf of France, but worse than wolves of France. Um, so that's where that whole, well, where I took the title of the book, but that whole idea of a woman being unnaturally fierce, unnaturally strong, not playing the good woman, the docile woman, the woman playing second fiddle to her partner. This is a woman who is out there on her own, usually fiercely defending her cubs, and in Margaret's case, her cub. Mm. But just before we get into all that, I just want to ask a more general question. Now, Margaret was only 15 when she married Henry VI, and yet she seems quite mature, quite old for one of these royal brides at the time. I mean, how did it work with these child marriages? And was this normal across all parts of society, or, or were these political marriages done at a very early age and they weren't supposed to be consummated until later? Very good question. Basically, the higher up the social hierarchy you go, the younger brides get. Normal people like you and me wouldn't get married probably until their early 20s, because apart from anything else, you had to save up. You had to be able to start a new household together, launch the happy couple on their new life. And when resources are harder to come by, that takes a bit of time. And you also want the family to be able to sustain itself, the wife needs to be able to work, the, and etc, etc, etc. But when it's a question of political alliances, sometimes children, royal children could be betrothed at two, at four. Didn't mean the marriages were going to happen then. But the age of consent, as far as the church was concerned, for a girl was 12, and for a boy was 14. And consent mattered because consent was required to make a marriage valid. So even if you were a princess being betrothed at the age of five, you still had to undergo the proper ceremony when you were 12 to say that you did consent. So there was an actual ceremony of consent? There was a, a Marriages were made by the two parties giving their consent, saying, I do, and then consummating the marriage. But it was known that consummating the marriage as young as 12 probably wasn't a great idea. By the time Margaret was 15, 
and that was how old she was when she arrived in England. In England, fifteen was generally assumed to be getting there. You could probably you could probably go ahead and consummate the marriage. It didn't tend to be a good idea for a twelve or thirteen year old. It, I mean, it's all pretty unsavoury by our standards. So I think we should probably assume that a bride of fifteen would be thinking that yes, uh, she wasn't going to be a bride in name only. But there, but there would have been. Presumably a strong impetus to, to try and start creating male heirs as soon as possible. Certainly. That was her primary duty. Any queen's primary duty was supposed to be to ensure the succession by producing a son. Right. So we, we talked about Margaret being one of the she-wolves in, in your book. And I got the sense, and I may be wrong, that you felt when you were writing the book that she was actually needlessly prolonging a war which ultimately was never going to go her way and it resulted in the death of her only son, Edward Prince of Wales and that you seem to be not as much on her side as you as you were with some of the other women in the book. I have enormous sympathy for Margaret because if you or I say needless that is a concept she would never have understood. For her, the struggle in which she was engaged was absolutely necessary. She was the Queen of England, married to the King of England. He had turned out to be pretty useless, couldn't fight to defend himself, couldn't fight to defend their son. And it's their son that is the centre of her whole world. And he, in her eyes is the rightful heir. There is no other necessity in the world other than to fight for his cause and to make sure that his birthright is what he gets so that he can take his place on England's throne. I think I have enormous sympathy for that. The difficulty I was having when I was looking at her life and and the choices she made, I could see the logic of them from her point of view completely. But she gets very quickly into a position where if you're not for me, you're against me. And she, I mean, there's an argument to be said that civil wars do this, that once a civil war has broken out, it's very hard to pull things back. Certainly in France, in the early decades of the 15th century, that had been true. A civil war sort of needs to cycle through terrible, terrible conflict and bloodshed before everyone works out that it's a much better idea to make peace. So I don't think... I'm saying that Margaret could have sorted it all out and come to some happy compromise with the Yorkists, but happy compromise was not even on the horizon of her agenda, to mix my metaphors. Um, As far as she was concerned, once the Duke of York had taken up arms against her husband, against her son, that rendered him beyond the pale and she was never going to agree to be reconciled, to find any kind of middle ground. So that was just not an option? Not an option, not an option. And I can see the rationale for it, but it meant that she, in trying to find a defensible position, in trying to use her territorial resources to build up an army, she ended up pushing the conflict further into confrontation, into violence, than it had been before she did that. I'm not sure what the happier alternative would have been, but certainly she wasn't a subtle politician. It was my way or the highway. In that, she's a bit like Joan of Arc. Her message was, with me or against me, I am going to fight. So do you think that even if she had managed to come to some kind of 
deal with Edward and say, all right, well, let my son rule and then you will succeed him, that that, that wouldn't have worked and that the son would have always, be, always been a target. The son would always have been a target and also Margaret would never have agreed because her son was going to have a son and then she would be abandoning her grandson's birthright. I mean, this is the logic of hereditary kingship is that if God has uh, anointed the sovereign and that divine mandate passes from father to son, who has the right to give that up? Uh, The kind of deal that the Duke of York had tried to do when Henry VI was in his power saying, okay, you can carry on reigning, sire, but I will succeed you. It was a compromise that had worked back in the 12th century when Matilda's son, Henry II, had followed Stephen. But it had helped a lot that Stephen's son had died at a very handy moment. But it it is an an all-or-nothing approach. Totally. Absolutely, totally. All-or-nothing could might just as well have been her motto. And very sadly for Margaret, nothing is what she ended up with. Right. Now, I really love the idea of Love Day, Ah, which sounds yes. <laughs> like a sort of music festival. I mean, how much was she behind organising that? I think Margaret was more or less forced into it. So it was Henry's idea? No, not much was Henry's idea. Okay. Um, there is a desperation among the political community by 1458 to try to find any kind of sticking plaster that might... Mm. It's as though the political community has got two broken legs and a big gash in the head and are trying to fix everything with a couple of elastoplasts. And because it's not really fixable, there have already been battles Noblemen have already died in battle at the hands of other noblemen. This is not easily fixable, but they're trying anything they can to see if they can avoid the whole thing falling apart. And so they have this wonderful idea, we will have a love day. It's an idea that operates in disputes within political society more generally. If you and I are neighbours and we're having an argument about where you've planted the trees at the end of your garden... We might end up going to arbitration. We'll ask our more powerful neighbour down the road if he'll sit down with us and see if we can work out a deal. And perhaps we can have a love day. We can have a love day. I mean, it might go (laughs) hand in hand with that because we will go hand in hand in front of the local community to show how we're entirely at one with our trees and our gardens and (laughs) the problem is all over. So they're applying this at the highest political level. They will have a great public procession out of St Paul's Cathedral where all the warring parties will show how much they love each other and how much all the problems are in the past by holding each other's hands as they come out of church. So Henry is holding... No, Henry is on his own because he's he's the king. Henry, Henry is on his own because he's the king. But the sons of some of these noblemen who've been killed are holding sons and heirs... So it's become a blood feud, really. They Mm. are holding each other's hands to show that all is forgiven, all is forgotten. Henry is on his own because he's the king. So he's the kind of keystone, the arbiter of everything. So, of course, he's staring at the sky, as he always does, looking (laughs) vague and not having... I mean, you know, the battles are... His position in the battles 
as I'm sure you've already said, is extraordinary. Basically, you plonk him in the market square or under a tree and you hope he doesn't get shot by a stray (laughs) arrow, which he did actually get injured by one in one stage. And basically, whoever wins the battle picks him up at the end and takes him home with them. Why didn't they just leave him in a safe castle somewhere? Well, you know, it's because because the risk is... uh, Battalion oh, of knights go, go and attack, yeah. attack the castle. You know, it's tricky right. to have a king you can't easily leave um, around <laughs> the place without him getting lost. Um, so Henry's there on his own saying, hello, clouds, hello, sky. Um, but Margaret is in the procession and she's holding the hand of the Duke of York. Mm. Now, on the face of it, this might seem like a good idea. You're showing that your warrior queen although part of her problem is she can't actually lead soldiers mm. on a battlefield because she's a woman. It's it's a tricky problem. But she's clearly the animating force behind that side in yeah. the Civil War. Um, she is showing that she is now reconciled with the Duke of York, who's in charge of the other side. Now, you could see it as a reconciliation or you could see it as a public acknowledgement that there are two sides. The Queen is leading one of them. And that they're equal. And that they're equal and there are two teams coming out. It's mm. like it's like coming out of the tunnel at a football match. Two Except they colors, don't hold hands. <laughs> they don't maybe hold they hands, should. but maybe they should. <laughs> exactly. But it seems like almost before they'd finished processing that they'd all fallen out with each other again. and it Because they hadn't ever really made up. Yeah. And that's the trouble. That's what the procession is showing, that there are two teams, that they hate each other's guts. And the minute they're out of eyesight, they're going to be planning again how best to but 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 yes and margaret she's struggling really isn't she it's very hard for her as a woman the other thing i haven't said about her of course being that being a french queen trying to lead your husband's cause in england when the country has just lost a very 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 big and long-standing war with france tends to undermine your position a little bit because the other side can always go, not only is she a woman, she's French. You're going to listen to her? Poor Margaret. And also her army was a northern army, and Londoners thought that they were foreigners. Absolutely, they didn't like it at all. She'd gathered this great army in the north, and then, it was very difficult, it was the middle of winter, was leading them south to, to try to take London, but allowed them to pillage as they went. They had to feed themselves somehow, but certainly she wasn't trying to restrain them. And the Londoners took one look at the messages that were coming south about what her army were doing, saying, no thanks, barred the gates, and held the city against her. When Edward arrived, they liked the look of him much better, opened the gates and let him in. He was a fellow southerner. Fellow southerner, also 18, gorgeous, tall, handsome, charismatic, a bit like Joan of Arc. They needed a miracle, Henry VI did not look like any kind of miracle that anyone could possibly envisage. Edward's father had just been killed fighting. His father was the one with dirty hands in this war. Mm. He was the golden boy. He looked like a fresh start. Why not go with him? Yes, Richard, the man who would be king, is suddenly killed. And and Edward comes from nowhere. And that really helps him to be untainted by the politics of the 1450s he can be a clean start and he's a 
very obviously able. He's just won the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. He's a good soldier. He's a charismatic leader. Yeah, he seems like a really good prospect. He does seem to slightly go the way of Henry VIII, though. In, uh, the other way around, because yeah. Henry VIII is his grandson. It's exactly that, yes. A uh, bit too fond of drink, bit too fond of food, bit too fond of the ladies. Uh, by the age of 40, he's in no shape at all. But 18... <laughs> ladies will do that to you. <laughs> If you say so, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was great to have you on again, Helen. Thank you so much. And you can learn a lot more about Margaret and through her, Henry VI, in Helen's fantastic book, She Wolf, The Women Who Ruled England Before Elizabeth. Um, Now, you presented a TV series based on that back in 2018. Is, Is it available to view anywhere, do you know? It pops up from time to time on BBC iPlayer. Um, and Yeah, and I never understand how iPlayer works. So sometimes they have the rights to thing and sometimes they don't. Or it? they choose to put it on. I don't really know. But it's yeah. also available on DVD at all good DVD retailers. Well, I was going to say, I from bet back someone's in the day. put it on YouTube. But no, get <laughs> yeah. it on DVD. <laughs> I, th- I think it is on YouTube, if we're allowed to say that. And, and your book on Richard II that we talked about when you were on talking about Richard is now available to pre-order. Finally, it is. Now, obviously, that slightly dates this um, podcast. So if you're listening in the future, the book's been around forever. (laughs) Why haven't you bought it yet? But at the time of recording, your book, uh, and what's it called exactly? It's called The Eagle and the Heart, The Tragedy of Richard II and Henry IV. And who's the eagle and who's the heart? Well, the wrong way around, aren't they? Because Richard is the heart and Henry is the eagle. But it just sounds better that way. That's heart as in H-A-R-T. H-A-R-T as in a deer, a very beautiful Being savaged deer. by an eagle. Don't give away the plot. Oh, no, you already have, haven't <laughs> you? Have <laughs> yes, that's a heart being savaged by an eagle. Or an eagle coming to rescue England from the depredations of the white hearts. Yes. Yeah. Deer can cause a lot of damage to they the environment. Can, I think they can. They can destroy forests. Um, (laughs) And as I said in the previous episode, Helen's book on the Wars of the Roses, uh, Blood and Roses, is a very good read as well. Helen, I hope I can maybe get you back one more time, but we're sort of, we're going to be moving on from your period of history, aren't we? You are, I think. Maybe we could squeeze one more in on the Tudors and then after that you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Henry VI, part two. We've left him deposed by Edward IV. Deposed, but crucially, still alive. And as I said in the previous episode, Henry and Edward are the only English kings to have ruled twice. So if you want to find out how that works, come back for the next episode, where we'll see Edward deposed, Henry reinstated, and then finally Edward roaring back and getting rid of Henry for the last time and retaking the throne. All of which was down to the actions of Warwick the Kingmaker. Or so he wanted everybody to think. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.